The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. You a member of the Bridge of Lions, sir? Sir? Although you feel free to study those boards, they are the property of the Bridge of Lions. Their examination is privileged to the membership of that society. Well, I'm sorry, sir, if I offended you by looking at the games. Did you know that over 30 million deaths were caused by World War I? Unnecessary. An accident of history brought about by a breakdown of communications. Not between nations, but between men. The men who create history, who speak for the nations, who say yes and no to fate. It was then that I decided to build a bridge between the great men and the great minds of the world. A bridge of lions. So that the borders of the nations could not come between these men when they desired to communicate with each other. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, November 16, 2017. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be With the recent Remembrance Day ceremonies just behind us this past Saturday, a very disturbing trend revealed by a recent poll about what system of governance various people would prefer to live under was brought to my attention by listener Mary Lou. Well, thank you for that, Mary Lou. In fact, taking a closer look at the report and what it signifies is exactly what we plan to do, right after reminding everyone that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Written by Kate Scanlon on November 2nd of this year, the headline reads, Poll, More Millennials Would Prefer to Live Under Socialism Than Capitalism. And she writes, Nearly half of millennials would prefer to live in a socialist country rather than in a capitalist country, according to a poll released Thursday by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. The poll, conducted by research firm YouGov, found that 44% of millennials would prefer to live in a socialist country, while 42% would prefer to live in a capitalist country. Another 7% said they would prefer to live in a communist country. On its website, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, which works to honor the legacy of those who lost their lives to communist regimes and to fight for the rights of those living in totalitarian states, wrote that the poll is, quote-unquote, disconcerting. It seems that the majority of America's largest generation would prefer to live in a socialist or communist society rather than in a free enterprise system that respects 
the rule of law, private property, and limited government, the group said. Communism isn't back. It never left. We simply forgot about it. And as it rears its ugly head once more, openly and shamelessly, we seem far less prepared to meet the challenge in this century as we did in the past, they added, end quote. Now that was said by victims of communism on their website, but I found particularly disturbing the nighttime satellite photo of North and South Korea that, ha that they posted on their site and that actually ended up comparing two unrelated concepts. Most of you are probably familiar with that photo, or many like it. Looking down on North and South Korea at night from the vantage point of a satellite, the glaring contrast between the darkness of the North and the bright lights of the South might be seen by aliens as some kind of unexplained geographical or planetary phenomenon of nature. <laughs> Ironically, it is that, but only if you're aware of the nature of humanity. But here's the self-defeating positioning that I think victims of communism has used on this well-known picture. Over the dark side of the map, North Korea, they have written in red letters, quote, this is communism. Over the bright side of the map, South Korea, they have written in white letters, no, not this is capitalism, but instead, this is prosperity. See the problem? The terms communism and prosperity are not even remotely comparable on any political or epistemological scale that would be of use to anyone trying to distinguish one political system from another or one economic condition from another. It's a funny thing, you know, no one will defend capitalism, not even anti-communists. A proper map of Korea, north and south, would have been labeled more like this. If you're going to use the word prosperity as your defining point for South Korea, then the proper contrasting concept over North Korea would have been poverty or destitution. If you're going to use the word communism over North Korea, then the proper opposing term over South Korea would have to be capitalism. Of course, you can't really call South Korea a capitalist country, but it is relative to the North. Or you could put the words freedom over the south part of Korea and tyranny over the north part. Of course, each of these defining terms in reality becomes a matter of degree, since many socialist countries manage a minimal degree of prosperity because they are forced to accept certain capitalist principles because of economic forces in play, like the law of supply and demand, up to a point that these principles don't interfere with the totalitarian nature of the government, right? Which is always the case, eventually. In contrast, many predominantly capitalist countries have been forced to accept certain communist and fascist and socialist principles because of political forces in play. In other words, there's political act activists, adjutants, and people in the country who want something for nothing. Capitalism is often best described as the economic condition under which trade is conducted without the fear or threat of coercion. It's an absence of physical force, which is unlike the market forces of supply and demand. But if you're waiting for that ideal condition to be met before you allow the negotiation of any trade between competing buyers and sellers, then you'll be holding your breath until the cows come home. 
Just because a trade deal is not fair in the sense of the products being traded being untouched by a government hand or a government hand out anywhere, is the grounds for preventing such a trade or deal, even if everybody on each side of the deal thinks they're benefiting from that deal, is the grounds for preventing such a deal justifiable? Even Canada or America would not be considered a free country under that standard, particularly since each country subsidizes, regulates, and controls so much of its you know, own agricultural products and, and production within the country. We still have milk marketing boards in Ontario. We've got an egg marketing board. We have municipal taxi monopolies. We've got a liquor control board of Ontario. We've got monopolized beer stores, soon to come monopolized pot stores. We've got an Ontario Colleges of Trade that was established, which is really a trade barrier for people who find themselves, you know, locked out of this guild, which you now have to be a member of. We have minimum wage laws that interfere with free contract. I mean, I could go on and on and on about how no nation is totally capitalistic in the sense of any standards you want to impose upon them ideologically. So much as capitalism and free trade are both moral and political ideals, let's lay off all of the virtue signaling about how pure one side in a transaction has to be before we can justify trading with them. I think that is dependent on a lot of other factors, and it's not a simple equation. If prosperity were by itself the justification for the kind of political system we choose to live under, then we would be in deep trouble indeed. Ask yourself a simple question. Would you rather be poor and free or prosperous and oppressed? Would you prefer to be prosperous and free or prosperous and not free? Would you prefer to be poor and enslaved or poor and free? The free side sounds like the better issue in every case because at least then you're still free to act and to change that condition. If you are in any of those other conditions and you're not free, then you're locked into that position and even your prosperity depends upon that condition of unfreedom which can only be provided for you by the state. And if they change their minds, well, you're not prosperous anymore, are you? Freedom is a necessary condition to achieve prosperity, but not a sufficient one. That's merely the political component. The rest generally falls outside the political parameters and depends on a variant of things, like the will and desire to produce, climate, natural resources, and of course, the people who will comprise any potential market for any products and the producers of those products. Here are more details about the poll released by the victims of Communism Memorial Foundation as presented by Glenn Beck on November 2nd. Nearly half of American millennials, 44%, would rather live in a socialist country than a capitalist one. Here it is. The millennials, capitalist, 42. I'd l- like to live in a capitalist country, 42%. Socialist, 44%. Mm. Here's where it gets scary. Millennials, 7% of millennials say, I'd rather live in a communist country. And 7% of the millennials say they'd rather live in a fascist country. Jeez. Gets worse. 23%, so almost a quarter. 23% of those 21 to 29 years old say Joseph Stalin was a hero. 
25% say that one of the biggest killers, murderers of the 20th century, bigger than Hitler, was a hero? Beyond that, an equal number of 20-somethings describe North Korea's Kim Jong-un also as a hero. Millennials give conflicting answers about free speech. 71% say it ought to be protected. An alarming 48% say it should be limited on social media. 45% say it should be limited on college campuses so it doesn't offend anyone. Oh, my gosh. Okay, now... Here's some good news. Here's some good news. We lost a generation. We lost the millennials because we weren't paying attention. Listen to this. Matures. So anybody who was alive during World War II. uh, Matures, 78% want to live in a capitalist country. 78%. Followed by baby boomers, 66%. Gen Xers, 57%. Millennials, 42%. Notice the trend? 78, 66, 57, 42% of millennials say they want to live in a capitalist country. The generation following them, where do you think this one is? Generation Z, 78, 66, 57, 42, zero. 67%. Want to live in a capitalist uh, country. So more than not only millennials, but also generation more than, X. More than more than baby boomer boomers. Wow. That's okay. that's really positive. That's really positive. To me, what that says is this is the Tea Party generation. This is the generation that has that has woken up because what they're seeing now, what they're growing up with, how we're raising them. They are seeing and they are learning. Hopefully, they are learning what these things are because we started to teach them. But we have to teach them completely. We have to teach them the worst about our country. They have to hear it from us. They have to hear the worst of our country and the worst things about capitalism. Because you know they're going to hear it when they get outside. And so you need to teach them the worst things about our country and then the worst things about socialism and the worst things about communism. And if there's any positive on socialism or communism, you should talk about it. And you need to talk about all the good things that this country has done. But the problem is we just tell it's like our faith. We we expect our kids that we're going to raise them and we're going to tell them all of these great things about Jesus and 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 religion. And then they're going to go to college and they're going to hold fast. Well, they might if we've done our job, they might. But I know a lot of parents who have done their job and their kids go to school and they say, nope, because they're hearing for the very first time concepts that they had not heard before. You need to teach your children the other side in a safe environment so they hear the other side and they understand, 
Okay, all right. So that's what people are going to say? Yeah. And why is that wrong? And really teach them. It's the only way. Well, teaching them is certainly a step in the right direction. But even as Beck himself admitted, it's no guarantee that they'll follow in the footsteps of those who preceded them. If you're wondering why an increasing number of young kids are turning towards communism, fascism, and admiring their murderous leaders as heroes, here is yet another exhibit to be found on the front pages of our own Canadian newspapers. Yes, newspapers in a country that every November 11 celebrates Remembrance Day. You'd never know that they remembered anything. The very headline accompanying the commentary of R. Michael Warren in the London Free Press this past October 6 was enough to make me see red in every way possible, from the higher blood pressure that ensued to the evil red philosophy of communism and fascism that Warren continuously spouts in the pages of Canada's daily newspapers. This one originating with the Post Media Network. Now printed on top of a half-page full-color picture of a man throwing a Molotov cocktail into a field of flames and fire reads the headline, quote, The Struggle to Civilize Capitalism. Holy smokes. When I first glanced at the photo, I thought it was a scene from the latest terrorist attack. And after all, when it comes to civilization talking about civilizing capitalism, freedom and capitalism are the only true measures of what can be called civilization. To behave in a civilized manner is to refrain from using force, to not use coercion, fraud, or any other dishonest means in your relationships with others around you. Civilized people agree to go their separate ways if no other cooperation is possible. Uncivilized people use the initiation of force, as their means of persuasion. So since capitalism is by definition the economic condition that arises as a consequence of civilizing the marketplace, that is, of banning the use of force from determining economic choices, outcomes, decisions, prices, in the marketplace of goods and services that people buy and trade, well, it is the moral standard. It's civilization. So what do you suppose the author possibly had in mind when writing a commentary with the headline, The Struggle to Civilize Capitalism? I quote, Four years ago, he says, I wrote an opinion piece arguing capitalism had the capacity and time to civilize itself. It survived the Great Depression because it had the inherent ability to reform itself in its own self-interest. Now I'm not so sure. I thought the captains of capital had a vested interest in ensuring the workforce had the means to buy their products and services. As Henry Ford famously said, the owners, the employees, and the buying public are all one and the same. But since the 2008 recession, economic recovery has been slow for most Canadians. Persistent wealth and income disparity has constrained consumer demand. 1% of Canadians are earning 15% of total income, 20% own nearly 70% of the wealth. Meanwhile, more than 50% of Canadians are $200 or less away from not being able to pay their bills. Meanwhile, progressive governments in Canada promised greater fairness in income tax, labor standards, and social programs as ways to bring the disenfranchised back into the economic mainstream. There seemed to be common ground for civilizing capitalism in Canada. 
Fast forward to today and this common ground has evaporated. Business doesn't seem to get the bigger picture. A country with more than a quarter of its workforce earning less than $15 an hour is a country flirting with political extremism. Business hasn't acted, so governments have had to intervene, maybe too aggressively. Wow, can you, can you see what the guy is saying? He's, he's holding business responsible for being the government of the country. That's pretty well what he's doing. Then he pretends to, you know, care about the businesses that are being basically plundered. Quote, I can understand why business feels it's being overwhelmed. An Ontario golf course owner told me he'll have to adjust to a 32% increase for his minimum wage workers over 18 months to $15, plus pay additional benefits. This will also prompt his workers already making $15 to want a raise. On top of this, the owner is paying more federal and provincial personal income tax as a result of recent federal and Ontario taxes on high-income earners. And now the federal government is proceeding with legislation that will prevent him from using his company to split income among the family and enjoy low tax rates on passive income within his business. The new NDP government in British Columbia is giving employers more time to adjust by phasing in a $15 minimum wage over the next four years. <laughs> There's the NDP doing what the Conservative Party under Patrick Brown here in Ontario was proposing. Just give them more time to adjust to the, uh, the fascism. Then Warren goes on to lament all the trends that are occurring in the world, including uh, you know, an emerging right-wing anti-immigration party that has made major inroads in Germany. And in France, the National Front, a right-wing populist anti-immigration party, has also made historic gains. Then he also complains about Trump's unlikely win, which is fueled in part by a coalition of overlooked blue-collar and working-class white voters. <laughs> Here's that white again whose anger has found a voice in a pathological president who's unlikely to ease their pain. Instead, he's bringing us all closer to nuclear war. I can't believe that grown adults are writing stuff like this in our newspapers. In this country, he writes, the membrane that divides us from this kind of divisive extremist populist politics is thinner than many think. We have to find ways to reverse the rising income and wealth disparity in Canada without crippling entrepreneurship, initiative, and investment. If we fail to civilize how capitalism functions in this country, we risk destabilizing our democracy and descending into political chaos. And that, of course, is from Michael Warren, who's former corporate director, Ontario deputy minister, TTC chief, general manager, and Canada Post CEO. The last guy on the face of this planet I want to take economic advice from. Every negative condition described by Warren is completely attributable to socialism and communism. And even his own account of how he relates cause and effect verifies this. I mean, there he is saying that progressive governments promise greater fairness and income tax, and, and, and they started doing all of these burdening things that they put on business. And then he wonders why business is having problem coping, as though business has this unlimited ability to earn money when, in fact, it, has to, it doesn't have a guarantee of who its customers are. And then he says that this is going to cause political extremism. Well, hello, the political extremist is Warren himself. Business doesn't seem to get the bigger picture, he argues, as if that's the concern of business. The bigger picture is fascism. The government telling business what to concern itself with and how to be concerned. That's fascism. Business pays for the bigger picture, so they know about it. 
It's all about wealth redistribution constantly, robbing Peters, which are the businesses, to pay Pauls, which are the voters, and somehow believing that anyone can possibly be helped by this scenario. The arguments of inequality and regional disparity and all other similar arguments are distractions calculated to divert our attention from the moral principles involved. Thou shalt not steal. Remember that one? Robbing Peter to pay Paul requires robbery. (laughs) It's in the the sentence. Robbery is theft. There's no trade or benefit offered in return other than a promise that perhaps one day the state will rob someone else on your behalf. And then everything will come out even and balanced, right? That is really perverted thinking. And at the root source of such thinking sits the desire to gain the unearned at the expense of others. Trying to fight, quote-unquote, inequality of outcome in the economy is like trying to fight climate change, which is another way that they are chipping away at your freedom. Each attempted action is an illusory fantasy that, if turned into reality, would become a living hell on earth because only dictatorships and tyrannies have the political mechanisms necessary to violate the life, liberty, and property of their citizens that such policies demand. There's no getting around that. And then everybody just talks about the symptoms. Nobody talks about the causes and the solutions. That just tells you people still want something for nothing. I mean, I hear people arguing about Ontario's recent college strike that's going on right now. And people are being hurt on all sides of it. But nobody's saying that, hey, maybe they shouldn't be allowed to strike. Maybe there should be some kind of contract law here. Maybe we should get back to a capitalist way of running our colleges. Same with the healthcare system. People will stand in line and suffer for months and years just because somebody told them it was for free. Another problem is the way that people talk about capitalism. And Warren was doing that. To talk about capitalism as if it were a thing, an entity, is a complete error and is the very basis of the illusion of collectivist thought. You know, capitalism does not act in its own interest, quote-unquote, as Warren was saying, and nor does socialism or any other ism. Individuals act in their own interests. Under capitalism, their interests compete and are in conflict, but not their rights. Legitimate rights, life, liberty, and property never conflict. What really needs to be civilized is not capitalism, but socialists. And I think Warren should be among the first in line. Once upon a time, there was a land of plenty, Ceylon. Food was abundant, but not all were fed. For the blessings of heaven showered not equally on all the subjects of this country. For there are always a few who are hungrier than others. But this was accepted as one of the vicissitudes of life. Until one day, a great lady, Mrs. Bandara Niker, brought forth a plan wherein all would be fed equally. And contentment would rule the land of Sri Lanka because the less fortunate of the people had not the means to pay for the food, it was given to them for free. Now clearly, her intentions were benevolent. 
But as is the way of best laid plans of the mongoose and the cobra, true equality seemed elusive. For among those people who loved equality so dearly, those who worked to grow their food felt unequal. They too felt they should have their food for free. But lo and behold, the more who ate for free, the fewer who tilled the fields. The land of enchantment turned into the land of discontentment. For now, there was no food, although it was for free. Promises, promises. But now our people starve. The people's voices did plead. Patience, patience. We get the food. But first must come the money. Now the discontentment grew among not only those who cried for food, but from those forced to pay the bills. For the freer the food, the higher the taxes. Alas, the lines grew longer. The food grew shorter. For one cannot give away what one does not have, or no one gets it if there ain't any. The voice of the people grew louder still. The press did clamor for more food. Hush, the stinging barbed the lady charged. Now is not the time for dissent. We must pull together. The army faithful did not question. The deed was done. Silence reigned at the point of a gun. Now all is silent and peaceful again in the land of Sri Lanka. For problems which we cannot talk about are no problems at all. Once there lived a king. His kingdom was California, and his throne was Sacramento. His subjects were the gentlemen of the state legislature. From 1922 to 1950, Arthur H. Samish, a private lobbyist, ruled California. Since the idea of government intervention in business is widely accepted, it was just a question of getting the proper legislation passed or keeping unfavorable legislation from being passed. Although in his legislative activities, Samish never broke a law, his powerful influence as a lobbyist resulted ultimately in the use of force through legislation and hurt the consumer and, of course, business outside the Samish circle. Arthur Samish one day received a telephone call from Louis Rosensteel, owner of famous four-year-old Shenley Whiskey in New York. Artie, I got something important on my mind I want to discuss with you. Come see me. Well, <laughs> when the big man calls, the little man jumps. I met him at his office, and he said to me, Harry, I'm very much concerned about Harry Hatch. You mean the president of Hiram Walker? Yes, he's a mean man. I'd like to see something done about him. What do you suggest? Well, he has a whiskey called Ten High... 
and it's the biggest seller in California. Tell me something about... It's a three-year-old whiskey. Three years older. <laughs> That's all I need to know. You leave it to me. I'll take care of Mr. Harry Hatch. When the legislature came back into session, I had one of my friends in the assembly introduce a bill which provided that all whiskey sold in the state of California had to be at least four years old. <laughs> the bill zipped through the legislature without a whisper of opposition. Governor Wilson vetoed it, but his veto was overridden. The dries loved the bill. For once I had him on my side, he'd vote for anything that could tail the liquor industry. The others thought it was a good bill because it protected the quality of whiskey. After all, I was looking out for the public's interest. See how easy it is? <laughs> Just make it four instead of three. And with the stroke of a legislative pen, you can wreak havoc on your competition to the point of eliminating that competition. <laughs> You are listening to Just Right Broadcasting Around the World and Online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support, and while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past broadcasts. All archived, not just for your listening enjoyment and convenience, but also as a record of our dedication, consistency, and principled approach to the discussion of all things just right about freedom and capitalism, which of course is the topic at hand today. The two parables we just heard were taken from the 1975 film The Incredible Bread Machine, which is readily available online via YouTube, and which I would recommend to one and all. The Incredible Bread Machine was originally a text of political commentary written by R.W. Grant in 1966, and it was turned into a film in 1975 by World Research Incorporated. And when it was released, it included an introduction by then-Secretary of the Treasury, William Simon, and interviews with professors Walter Heller, Milton Friedman, and Dr. Richard Rogue. And the film also features a cameo appearance by Marianne Rothbard, which I thought was fascinating because I find it remarkable to this very day that economist Murray Rothbard should have been one of two keynote speakers, myself being the other, at the announcement of the launch of the Freedom Party of Ontario that took place at the Royal York Hotel in downtown Toronto way back in October 1983. I still have my autographed copy of Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State, a book for which I have great respect, unlike how I feel about his book Toward a New Liberty, which was all about, you guessed it, libertarianism as a political philosophy. Even in 1983, I knew that libertarianism and other philosophies like it were incompatible with freedom. I mean, there were too many contradictions in libertarianism as a political philosophy, one that was simply based on this idea of no force and should be used in human relationships. It's a little, little too narrowly confined. But stories like the ones that we just heard from The Incredible Bread Machine and others should be taught to each and every generation. That is, in fact, the purpose of great myths and fairy tales and other legends that capture universal truths about human behavior and the causes and effects of that behavior. 
Ceylon, the once-upon-a-time history about the land of plenty, was, I thought, particularly chilling because I can so relate to what's happening around us today. Perhaps the most haunting part of that story was, in the end, why freedom of speech could not be tolerated. I think it's something that we need to understand what's happening today. The voice of the people grew louder, hushed the stinging barbs, Silence reigned at the point of a gun. Now all is silent and peaceful again, for problems we cannot talk about are no problem at all. (laughs) Wow. M103, anyone? Political correctness, anyone? That last statement about silence reigning at the point of a gun is the point at which Ontario today sits. Fascism is alive and well in Ontario and Canada, and in the United States. So I have to wonder, against what understanding of their own political environment did the responders to the poll released by Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation actually base their decisions? Arthur H. Shamish, in the second true parable about California, proudly boasted, quote, after all, I was looking out for the public interest, end quote, who was, of course, doing no such thing. I have to make a distinction here that you don't hear too often, and this is this term, public interest, is the wrong term. We should be using the term, the general interest, so as to clearly define the difference between the two. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Notice how they use the term common and general. The word public is not in there. The problem with that word is that a public is divisible, and as such is constantly being divided by politicians into differing interest groups. They're all public groups, after all with each group accorded some kind of magical made-up group rights that have the power to override the rights of individuals and smaller groups at the discretion of the politicians. Now think about this. You cannot divide, like you can with the public interest, something called the general welfare or the general interest. Nor can you divide the commons without changing the very nature of the term. There's no such thing as the public or a public mind. These are fictions, metaphysical fictions. A single public interest versus many competing private interests is possible. And of course, the public interest in concrete reality always means the government's interests, which in turn always means the ruling politicians' interests, since governments as such should have no interests and should be blind to the interests of their citizens. Government's just the tool. Now, any individual can be a member of the public, but no individual can be a member of the general or of the common in the sense that you can be a member of the public. You can't distinguish yourself from any other members. I'll give you an example. When government itself, here in Ontario and Canada, had only a general interest in the prohibition of marijuana, which is now being legalized, The fines and penalties for most offenses were minuscule compared to the suggested and threatened fines that Canadian governments are today planning to impose on anyone who is now going to be caught 
competing with their own government-controlled monopoly. All of a sudden, the government has an interest. So if you want to fight the government now, who is no longer representing the general interest, it's representing members of the public. It's representing the public interest now. I mean, when taxi monopolies found themselves faced with Uber competition, suddenly the governments who already had a specific public interest in their monopoly structure, thanks to all the exorbitant taxes and fees collected, they found themselves picking sides in a competitive quarrel. Just as the state of California chose to make only four-year-old whiskey legal, local governments began to insist that Uber drivers should have to have cameras in their cars. And a whole host of injustices that have nothing to do with protecting the general welfare. The interest of individuals, which is the public, versus the general interest, which is the governed and those who govern, are two different things. But here's the corollary of that. Any individual or group can speak out in the general, in the public, or private interest, but that doesn't give anyone any authority to force others into supporting whatever interest somebody's advocating. For that, we have a process, a process under individual rights. You know, it's the we precedes the I, as Salim Mansour likes to note, which is the unique relationship between the individual and the state that only Western cultures have really managed to approach. And it should be remembered that just as group rights are a social and political concept, so too the concept of individual rights is a political and social concept. Each form of rights, group rights or individual rights, addresses the nature of the group. It's not about individuals per se, it's not even about the group per se. A couple of other concepts relating to capitalism that need to be addressed, just like individual rights. Property. Property is not a thing. Property defines the relationship between a given thing and the person who is in charge of that thing. The person with exclusive access to whatever that thing is, be it land, be it rights to a script or a musical composition, or the very shirt on someone's back. Property establishes ownership, and ownership establishes control within a social setting. Now, the proper role of government is to act as the police and referee to ensure that no person's right of ownership is violated by another person who does not have that right. But all governments that lean leftward simply cannot assume such a role. They cannot be a protector of individual rights if they must routinely violate those very rights to carry out their policies, particularly if you've got wealth redistribution schemes masquerading as social programs that meet some kind of need of some sort. Then there's the issue of force. Even objectivists get into trouble over this. You know, I was on an objectivist website where they showed the left and right spectrum. Moving from right to left, they talked about degrees of force. And on the right, on the far right, they had no force at all. But this is an incorrect illustration of how left and right juxtapose against each other or how force is employed. To say 
that no force is an essential element on the right is to throw the whole concept of life, liberty, and property and rights themselves out the window. I mean, here I'm looking at this on an objectivist website. Having the right to one's own life, liberty, and property literally means having the right to use force in defending those three things. And like it or not, the use of force is the final arbiter in all disputes, whether on the side of good or evil. The determination of whether the use of force is moral or immoral, well, that falls under another essential discipline in a free society, and that is justice. So here are the essential conditions you're dealing with to all those people considering capitalism or socialism. Here's the two choices you've got. You can either choose tyranny of the left or the freedom of the right. You can either choose plunder on the left or free trade and the capitalism on the right. You can either enjoy living in a society of consent on the right or in a society of coercion that obviates consent on the left. On the left, you have statism. On the right, you have democracy. On the left, you have rulers and rule. On the right, you have governments and governing and of course, on the left you have group rights, and on the right you have individual rights. And group rights should be called group wrongs. Mr. Rosmenko, light-footed one. In our country, we've been hearing a lot about the vocal minority. Oh, Mr. Buddha sitting there. In the old country, it's the same thing. Is you know, the minority thing? is very vocal. Yes, very vocal. Very vocal. Only from Siberia, it's impossible to hear them. is a legend of success and thunder and a man, Tom Smith, who squelched world hunger. Now Smith, an inventor, had specialized in toys. So people were surprised when they found that he, instead of making toys, was baking bread. The way to make bread he'd conceived cost less than people could believe. And not just make it, this device could in addition wrap and slice. The price per loaf, one loaf for many, the minuscule sum of under a penny. Can you imagine what this meant? Can you comprehend the consequence? The first time yet, the world well fed, and all because of Tom Smith's bread. A citation from the president for Smith's amazing bread. This and other honors too were heaped upon his head. But isn't it a wondrous thing how quickly fame is flown? Smith, the hero of today, tomorrow, scarcely known. Yes, the fickle years passed by. Smith was a millionaire, but Smith himself was now forgot, though bread was everywhere. People, asked from where it came, would very seldom know. They would simply eat and ask, was not it always so? However, Smith cared not a bit, for millions ate his bread, and everything is fine, thought he. I am rich, and they are fed. Everything was fine, he thought. He reckoned not with fate. Note the sequence of events starting on the date on which the business tax went up. Then, to a slight extent, the price on every loaf rose too, up to one full cent. 
What's going on, the public cried. He's guilty of pure plunder. He has no right to get so rich on other people's hunger. A prize cartoon depicted Smith with fat and drooping jowls, snatching bread from hungry babes, indifferent to their howls. Well, since the public does come first, it could not be denied that in matters such as this, the public must decide. So, antitrust now took a hand. Of course, it was appalled at what it found was going on. The bread trust, it was called. Now, this was getting serious, so Smith felt that he must have a friendly interview with the men in antitrust. So, hat in hand, he went to them. They'd surely been misled. No rule of law had he defied. But then, their lawyer said, The rule of law in complex time has proved itself deficient. We much prefer the rule of men. It's vastly more efficient. Now, let me state the present rule. The lawyer then went on. These very simple guidelines you can rely upon. You're gouging on your prices if you charge more than the rest. But it's unfair competition if you think you can charge less. A second point that we would make to help avoid confusion. <laughs> Don't try to charge the same amount. That would be collusion. You must compete, but not too much. For if you do, you see, then the market would be yours. And that's monopoly. Price too high or price too low? Now, which charge did they make? Well, they weren't loath to charging both, with public good at stake. In fact, they went one better. They charged monopoly. No muss, no fuss, no woe is us. Egad, they charged all three. Five years in jail, the judge then said. You're lucky it's not worse. Robber barons must be taught. Society comes first. Now, bread is baked by government. And as might be expected, everything is well controlled. The public well protected. True, loaves cost a dollar each. But our leaders do their best. The selling price is half a cent. Taxes pay the rest. And on that note, welcome to Ontario 2017. <laughs> wow. One of the problems with defending capitalism is that it's constantly being defended on economic grounds, and this is incorrect. This is not the way you do it. The only way to defend capitalism, in fact, the only way to argue any point in human discourse is to argue the moral position. Once you've established that, then everything else can be talked about. And you have to be wary of what moral weapons are being used against capitalism. Methods like altruism, practiced as a moral or philosophic doctrine, you know, as, as a forced self-sacrifice. It's, it's not charity, which is a voluntary action. I mean, governments cannot create either ideas or jobs. That's only people do that, and when people do that, that's part of a capitalist system. You'll hear a lot about the unfairness of inequity. Well, there's nothing unfair about inequity, unless the inequity we're talking about is 
treating different people differently before and under the law. And there, there, come, come to think of it, there's plenty of that going on, but not in the economic sense strictly. You'll hear false claims of injustice and the promotion of a victim culture, which of course leads to racism based on group identities instead of individualism, sexism, which is based on group identity instead of individualism, and diversity, which is based on group identities instead of individualism. So you can see how far we have drifted to the left. None of these things, none of these virtue signals, has any value to any society, free or otherwise, because the net effect of doing the things will always be the same. It's the road to tyranny. It's the road to poverty. It's the road to increased levels of misery in the daily lives of the citizens. Now, the bottom line of all this is that even though it's always about, you know, it's the economy, stupid, as Bill Clinton said, the response to these moral concerns cannot be merely economic. Talking about efficiencies and what produces the greatest income for the greatest number of people are meaningless and carry little power of influence against the far more powerful moral arguments of, you know, being your brother's keeper, looking after others, making sure that no person you know, falls by the wayside. These sound like great moral premises, but that's not what they are. They're great benefits to have. But you, you don't start with the benefit and then work backwards and try and figure out how to get there. The case has to be made that the response to these charges has to be moral, especially if they're false. It has to be a moral response. The economic benefits or hazards all result from the moral direction pursued by both governs, governments and the governed. The case must be made that capitalism is mankind's only moral economic condition. It's the only one we've discovered. It has all the principles in place that are necessary. Moral, because capitalism is based on the principle of consent. All other economic systems are simply varying degrees of economic immorality. The systemic and and systematic breaking of the commandment of, you know, thou shalt not steal. Unless a democratic majority approves, of course. This is also why capitalism is hated so much by those on the left. I mean, it's a bit difficult to convince people voluntarily to just give their money to others without their consent, you know what I mean? Capitalism does not tolerate theft, nor the use of coercion. That's what distinguishes capitalism as one method of trade from all the rest. In contrast, altruism is seen as being the opposite of selfishness or self-interest, yet all that altruism really represents is serving the selfishness and self-interest of others. How does that really change anything? Politicians justify that the difference between those two sides of that equation is one side's in need and the other has something. So that justifies theft. It does not. The real difference is in the responsibility factor. Those getting something for nothing have no responsibility involved in getting that money. Those who must pay have all the responsibility, including being responsible for others over whom they have no control or jurisdiction. That's injustice. I mean, I couldn't think of a better definition of injustice. And it is at the very core of all leftist thinking. 
So the right is about individual responsibility. The left is about collective responsibility, which is a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing, nor is it metaphysically possible. It repeatedly results in destruction. Witness World War I, World War II, and every collectivist nation on earth. The greater the collectivism, the less the individual freedom, and the greater the general misery of the people. Find me an exception. The same politicians and social engineers responsible for much of the problem are now proposing solutions in the form of poverty panels, a guaranteed minimum income, and other Rob Peter to pay Paul schemes. It just never ends. I mean, just this past Saturday, again, November 11th, there's Michael Warren again in the pages of the Free Press advocating, get the title of this headline, Future Proofing Workers. And he calls for, quote, the modernization of provincial labor laws and social safety nets to reflect the reality of the short-term contracts and freelance work that is rapidly replacing permanent jobs. And he suggests that we rethink universal basic income. Ontario is launching a basic annual income pilot project in three cities next year. And then referring to the revolution in artificial intelligence and the development of robots, Warren concludes, quote, if this widespread workplace transformation is to be beneficial, we have to stop debating how many jobs will be lost or gained and start future-proofing our workforce, end quote. What the hell is he talking about? Consider the horrors of what this would mean, given the burdens that Warren has already supported in his previous diatribe against freedom and capitalism. He's trying to figure out a way how to get independent people who don't have these huge jobs to take on those same phony responsibilities for people who do, don't have the jobs. He wants to continue the wealth transfer. So how can either a true voice or a true choice for a true right ever emerge from all this confusion? The true right being freedom, capitalism, and democracy. You know, it's a, it's a frustrating dilemma for those on the right seeking to have their, quote, right ideology fairly understood and thus hopefully politically supported by increasing numbers. What kind of argument is needed to turn the leftward drift around and point it in the right direction? How does one present a right political opinion to a resistant public largely oblivious to any political ideology at all? How come what's been tried so far hasn't worked? What does work? What would be the convincing argument? This, this is something we always ask ourselves. Well, I've said it before, and I think in a lot of ways we're past the argument stage, aren't we? To borrow from an oft-quoted political bromide, ask not what freedom can do for you, but ask what you can do for freedom. Again, in the asking of that question, you will find that action speaks, speaks louder than words, and that words alone are simply not enough to persuade others to choose what is just right. And with that closing thought, be sure you again choose what is just right one week from now when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. It is alleged in Le Mans that the recent British Electronic Systems contract with Qumran was won by bribery. Do you hear this, Humphrey? Yes, indeed, Minister. It's said that this is part of a hideous web of corruption woven by Western industrial countries and third world governments that forms a blot on our modern civilization. Isn't this terrible? 
Baseless accusations like this. Oh, yes, yes, terrible. Backsheesh, palm greasing. God, we are British. Absolutely. Look, clear minister. <laughs> it's not like the FT to print a story like this unless there's something behind it. Is there something behind it, Humphrey? I think the sports news is behind it. 